Despite our disappointment that climate negotiations, for example, haven't led to enough drastic action, in fact, we are taking action as nations, as strangers. We are making choices collectively that, let's face it, no other species has the capacity to make and that we've very rarely made in our past. In other words, we are choosing to forego personal benefit on a global scale to further collective well-being. Welcome to Design Influence. I'm Isabel Swiderski. So many recent stories focus on the fact that our social fabric is fraying, that trust in public institutions is plummeting. And yet, COVID-19's biggest lesson might be that capitalism can still save the day, as long as the risk inherent in its activities is absorbed by governments focused on protecting their citizens' well-being. In other words, that big business can be harnessed by big government to mitigate the impacts of a global crisis. According to the World Bank, about 4.2 billion people, or 55.3% of the world's population, are located in urban areas today. This number is estimated to increase to more than 6 billion by 2045, and by 2050, 7 in 10 people worldwide will be living in cities. Now, we know cities are key economic drivers, often even outperforming their own countries in terms of growth. We also know that urbanization comes at a cost, particularly around affordable housing, transportation and pollution, but also around safety and access to public and green spaces. So how are we responding to the challenges and opportunities brought to light by the pandemic? And more generally, how do we even define, let alone measure, the most important dimensions of human well-being? There are myriad examples of innovative urban design projects around the world that bring to life that Positive impacts are possible when happiness and well-being sit at the center of public policies or private initiatives. I wondered what conditions made them successful and what they might teach us about living better together. Charles Montgomery is based in Vancouver, Canada, and works globally. He's the author of the book Happy City, Transforming Our Lives Through Urban Design, and the founder of the urban design consultancy of the same name. He sat with me to share some stories about working at the forefront of this movement. Hmm. Well, the work we do at Happy City in particular um, is both general and specific. So we're bringing evidence to bear on the relationship between designed environments and human happiness. So our mission is to create healthier, happier, and more inclusive places. I think our our mission has, has changed slightly, and our method has changed slightly in the past few years. Um, after I wrote the book, Happy City, uh, I thought if people just had the evidence, we would create better places. And of course, <laughs> there, uh, there was some naivety and perhaps some ego at work there. And uh, my growing team has taught me, and the world has taught us, that often the experts on um, quality of life and inclusion and joy uh, and resilience in cities are residents themselves. They may never have gone to school to learn these things. They may not be writing peer-reviewed research. Um, so our work now is combining evidence-based design, experimentation, along with uh, deep, deep engagement of uh, people who live in communities. 
What are some of the challenges that that come with that? Because I know you work globally. So what are what are instances where you thought, oh, next time we will do it this way? <laughs> well, I can give you the um, the nightmare story, and perhaps we can start with the nightmare and come back to the dream. <laughs> okay. Um, so. A few years ago, we were invited. We, we do a lot of work in, in the Middle East, and uh, my team and I were invited to give a workshop in the um, holy city of Medina in Saudi Arabia. And it seemed like a, a really interesting place to go and, and to learn, to experience how things are, are done in a place that's so different from Canada and the United States. So we didn't do our homework. I mean, we know there's there's issues, certain clear issues around equity in Saudi Arabia, but uh, I arrived to find the um, the workshop set up in a beautiful condition, all kinds of delicious food set out and tables with crisp white tablecloths and video screens all over the place. And uh, the clients work very well to help us bring, work out their methodology. And then I looked around the room and I said, well, where, where are the women? And they said, oh, the women are participating. They're in the women's room. Uh, and I said, well, where's the women's room? And the women's room was on the other side of this complex. So I made my way over to the women's room, and and um, there they were. They had the same food, some video screens, but of course they weren't present with the rest of us. And that inclusion only by video link created this tremendous difference. And I said, you know, how, how can I make this experience better for you? And a, and a woman pulled her veil off, and she said, well, it's pretty simple. Let us in. And of course the client said, well, we can't do that. This is a government building. It's it's forbidden. And I tell you that story uh, both to illustrate our naivete, but also to create a bridge because when I came back from Saudi Arabia, I was thinking, you know, isn't it terrible that we were almost powerless in this environment to create an equitable space of learning and sharing and growth together because of these restrictions? And I'm sure glad to live in a country where that doesn't happen. Well, you know, a few days later, I get an email in my inbox uh, from a, a colleague I really respect in the planning realm. And it was an invitation to something called men's drinks, men's Christmas drinks. <laughs> and in the planning field, and I, I wasn't sure if it was a joke or not. And um, of course, it was a realization that, you know, this work still needs to be done all over the world. It needs to be done in every city and it needs to be done it as an exercise in power, but it needs to be done in our own hearts where we understand the way, the ways that people are excluded and we work harder to, to include everyone. Is, is urban planning broken, Charles, in general? I mean, we look at U.S. cities that are using traffic violations to bring money in for their budgets. Gentrification is, is, is out of control. And, and I'm not saying everything is negative, but, but is urban planning broken as a discipline? Aren't we all a little bit broken? I mean that. I'm not being facetious. Yes. <laughs> we are all flawed. Sure. Um, supremacy exists in the hearts uh, of, of everyone. And it certainly exists in the tools, the histories, and the habits of urban planning. And so... I mean, the first step, I think, is, is to recognize the disease where it exists. And I mean, it starts inside of all of us. People use power over other p people in order to maintain their own power. 
in order to exercise supremacy. And so, yes, as you point out, it, it, it does exist in our in the way we design cities. I, you know, I'm speaking to you from Vancouver, and here in Vancouver, we have um, we have um, zoning rules that exclude most people from 80 percent of the city. In other words, 80% of the city is zoned only for single-family homes, perhaps with an accessory dwelling or a basement suite. And, you know, we know those laws were, were formed in an age of racist uh, and classist practices. And they're still on the books. Um, we still have neighbors in Vancouver fighting hard to stop the city council, even from allowing apartments 200 meters off of, of arterial streets. Uh, so this work needs to take place everywhere. But I think it's starting to work through these difficult conversations of self-examination. It, well, and on that, you've developed a framework for the Happy City around nine dimensions. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? And how, how did that framework develop? I mean, obviously through conversations, but tell us more about that process for you of, of defining a framework. Mm. So the book Happy City... It's a narrative, mm -hmm. and it essentially charts my own journey seeking to understand the relationship between uh, urban design and human well-being. And narratives inspire, but they don't necessarily translate into practical action. Mm -hmm. And after the book came out, I, was, I would go to various cities and speak to hundreds or thousands of people, and people would wave the book in the air and say, I'm going to show this to the mayor, and then I would leave, and nothing would change. And so um, that's when I sat down with Omar Dominguez, who's the co-founder of, of Happy City, and, and we talked about, well, what we, what we need are tools to enable people to change. And we're drawing from thousands or tens of thousands of pieces of evidence, but those overwhelm people. So you need to start someplace easily graspable. And so that's why we identified essentially our wheel of well-being, which you refer to as our framework. These are the outcomes, the positive outcomes we want to see around human well-being in cities. And um, so they are not prescriptive because the prescriptions are always local. And they always need to be collaborative and they involve, you know, constellations of, of, of minute changes in cities. But at its, at its very base, I won't take you through the whole wheel, but we're talking about creating healthier, happier more inclusive places. And the emotions associated with those things are feelings of joy, feelings of ease as we move through our cities. Equity, which is ensuring that everybody has access to the um, benefits, the joys and ease and the opportunities of city, city life. It's odd for urban planners to encounter an objective such as meaning, but we also feel, um, because the evidence tells us, that having a deep sense of meaning in your life and in your community is a strong contributor mm -hmm. to, to well-being. So the framework is about taking these um, psychophysiological states as a starting point and then building strategies and actions out of those with local clients. So speaking of those multiple dimensions, I think the pandemic really kind of caused the blurring between public and private spaces. What, in the context of your work, do you think we've learned from that? Hmm. Well, I think uh, the first thing we learned is particularly in the early months of the pandemic, well, we learned two things in, in parallel. One was how painful it is to be cut off from the people we care about, to be cut off from face-to-face -face contact. And it's equally painful to be cut off from the people 
with whom we have casual encounters in the streets. Those casual encounters are, are really good for us. At the same time, we learned that in a time of crisis, people do act. We act on the local level. We build uh, local uh, informal and formal networks of help and care. Uh, but we also saw how, how governments acted very quickly in a way they're not acting around climate change, for example. Mm -hmm. um, we saw roads being uh, reapportioned to make room for pedestrians and cyclists. We saw very quick action in cities like Oakland, which was quite fascinating to see. They, they moved very quickly to start a slow streets program. And then, of course, members of the community said, well, you only really talk to the white people in the community. It, what the, uh, many people of color said they needed were safe ways to get to transit and to get to work. And that didn't mean miles and miles of um, biking streets. What it meant was um, safer uh, crossings near transit stops, for example. And so they acted very quickly to pivot and act on those recommendations by, by listening. And so I think those are a couple of things we, we learned during the pandemic is we can act quickly if we feel a sense of urgency. And I would say moving forward, we have to hold on to that sense of urgency you know, in many cities, those streets, in Toronto, for example, the sidewalk cafes and these social zones that were reclaimed from cars, well, they're now being given back to automobiles. It's as though we've forgotten those lessons that were so precious to be learned at the time. I was thinking about this sense of urgency and what you were saying about climate change and, and, the, and the inertia that we're seeing on that side. So how do we hold on to that sense of urgency? And, and are, have you seen openings in, in the context of your work and, and the folks that you interact with to help hold on to that urgency or to help illustrate that when there is willpower, there is the possibility of really making change that is adequate, appropriate and inclusive, not only in a moment of crisis? I, I can't let go of that, that word crisis just yet. Crisis can be opportunity. We saw that the COVID crisis has been an opportunity for rapid change. But we know the climate crisis is slow and grinding. But it can also be an opportunity for positive change in happier cities. And what we've been doing is connecting those two movements, the movement for happier cities and the movement for climate action. And the remarkable thing is that many of the things we do, we would do just to make a city happier, just to make people's lives easier and more connected. These things are all also represent climate action. For example, allowing more missing middle, you know, middle density infill housing in some traditional neighborhoods. This is a, this is a, a, a GHG reduction action. And yet, it's also an action for equity, allowing more people to live closer to shops and services and transit. It's also a move for personal health, allowing more people to, to walk and bike in their neighborhoods rather than spending hours in a car every day. And we do see cities starting to, to pay attention to this. And you say cities plural, and again, your, your work is global in nature. Are you seeing commonalities? Are you seeing a, a shared uh, understanding of where some of the opportunities are? I know it's a difficult question because obviously there are many dimensions and they're very complex, but does anything strike you in recent experience where you thought, oh, I can see that this is really, uh, as, as part of this movement, there is kind of an awakening around these dimensions? I think everybody who has their eyes open in the, in the realm of urban planning, city building, and design right now, 
does see the connection between climate action and well-being. I'll give you an example. Um, we work with uh, the biggest property developer in the UK called British Land. And British Land have been le longtime leaders on sustainability. And they realized it's not good enough. They also need to lead on human well-being because these things are intricately connected. And so uh, we worked with them to adopt uh, the well-being framework to create a set of principles that will guide their property development and management practices. Now, all this sounds like very bureaucratic language. So I'll give you an example of how this plays out. Um, if you've ever been to Paddington Station in London, just north of Paddington Station is a development known as Paddington Central. It's offices and a couple of hotels and there's some residences and a lot of public space. Um, when I first saw this space, it was a kind of Orwellian landscape. Kingdom Road is a street with um, just incredibly cold, gray office uh, edges, uh, gray stones. You expect to only see sullen-looking men with bowler hats marching up and down all day long. And indeed, it, it, does, it does feel that way, minus the bowler hats. So British Land took the well-being framework. We did an audit of this space. And then they applied the, the evidence-based approach to well-being and remade the public spaces in Paddington Central. What does it look like now? Well, that Orwellian gray, dark space of Kingdom Road has been transformed into um, an urban forest and herb garden. And in, in case you think that just sounds kind of twee, you should also know that people are expressing feeling happier in that space. People spend more time in that space. And what's critical is they're seeing a 50% jump in women using that space because they feel safer and happier and more welcome being there. So, oh, and by the way, the lease, um, the lease agents uh, for this area are, are now reporting that, you know, lease rates are going up. People want to pay more to be in these kinds of happier, healthier spaces. And so it's an example of where the people who are responsible for actually building and managing areas of cities take on the well-being project and achieve well-being goals um, while also achieving other goals, like, you know, keeping their offices full. And so is that what's most needed? More folks taking on that responsibility? What, what's your thought on what's most needed at this moment to accelerate this movement of connecting well-being with sustainability? So we, we're seeing a lot of people sharing metrics on sustainability. We're seeing cities adopting metrics on GHG emissions and reductions. And what we want to see is people fusing those kinds of metrics with well-being metrics. And it, is start, it started to happen around health. We're seeing measures for healthier cities. And finally, it started to happen around equity. We're seeing in places led by cities like Vienna, uh, measures for gender equity in urban planning and design, where they're using teams of girls and young women and, old, and elderly women as their urban observers and designers of spaces so they can figure out how spaces work so they work for everybody. So we're seeing that happen. But some of us are also uh, working to create uh, more holistic measures, which bring in metrics like the ones I suggested to you before. How comfortable do we feel in spaces? How easy is it is, is it to move around them? Who's included in these spaces? And how do the design of spaces change our behavior so that we all end up making uh, better choices about you know, how to live and how to move? 
You know, one place, surprisingly, that's doing this is the United Arab Emirates. This is a country of incredible inequity, and yet they have a national housing program. Of course, that housing program is only for Emirati citizens. They have been building shitty communities for Emirati nationals for decades now, where Emirati nationals will leave their dense, connected uh, home communities and be given a, a mansion or a villa out in an auto-oriented suburb, out in the desert. And what they find is they become lonely. Their parents who live with them don't see their friends anymore. Their kids can't walk to school. And life just sucks. And so the National Housing Program, the Sheikh Zayed Housing Program, uh, worked with us to create a new blueprint and framework for happy community design that was much more holistic. But there's an element of this I should share with you. What was holding back the Emiratis from having truly connected and happy communities? Well, it was their wealth and their exclusion of others. So we know you can't have a walkable, connected community unless you have a, an, a critical mass of people who are willing to live above shops and services and who are willing to walk. If everybody lives in a mansion with a big yard, you can't have that place. So the place they dreamed of, the place they yearned for, they couldn't have because this housing program developed exclusive communities where everybody who wasn't an Emirati national was excluded. And so what we did was we brought the Emiratis together with foreigners who were mostly working in the professional sector to explore their values for what, you know, what did they care about? What kinds of communities did they care about? And finally, one, and they agreed on everything. And finally, a, a Syrian um, planner stood up and said, hey, you know, my Emirati friends, would you mind if I was your neighbor? And it was unanimous in the room. <laughs> they agreed. They would like to have this person who they've been sharing values with, who they saw was a good person. They would like him as their neighbor. So we built this into their national strategy uh, for the housing program, that these communities will now be mixed. Now, this is only a tiny victory, because in the Emirates, um, the laboring class is still completely excluded, particularly South Asian laborers are completely excluded. But we, we felt it was the first step. And not to be holier than now, folks in Europe and North America can learn the lesson from this, which is that the more inclusive our communities are, the better they are for all of us. What a story and a, a challenge of, of this recurring issue that we have as humans to constantly other um, and, and mistrust each other, even though, as we know, we need social connectedness, as you were saying earlier, and those chance encounters in the street with people who, who maybe don't have that much in common with us um, are what fuel us as well. Did you draw any conclusions on how you might make that kind of approach? I don't want to say more systematic, obviously, because I think that would be challenging. But did it give you some clues as to as to how you could tackle, you know, some of the nimbying that goes on in North America, for example? What a question! Yeah, I think I think first of all we have to acknowledge that our physical distance from one another, our segregation from one another, another through where our bedrooms are or how we have experiences. The, this is deepening inequity and it's, and it's lowering trust. It's lowering societal trust. If you look at the Americans, for example, who were most likely to switch their vote to a Trump vote uh, in the previous um, election where Trump was first elected, 
those were people who were living in neighborhoods where they had almost no experience of the other. I'm sorry, I should say these were white Americans who had almost no experience of, of people of difference, people of color. And for me, it comes back to building empathy and building trust. Or I should say, building trust through empathy. We need more uh, opportunities for trust-building counters with, with one another. And we see this broken trust playing out in person and online throughout society right now, uh, where so many of these issues divide us, whether it's COVID vaccinations or immigration or feelings on climate change. And what we do know is that arguing about these subjects almost never succeeds in convincing others of our point of view uh, and changing behavior. So I've been most impressed by processes that bring people from disparate points of view together to understand each other's values. I'll give you one example where this has succeeded. Uh, in Taiwan, uh, was it 2016, hundreds of citizens marched on the Capitol, they broke in, and they occupied the Capitol building. Now that story sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's exactly what happened in January 2021 in Washington. Only the outcome was different. What was happening in Taiwan was that people weren't feeling heard by the government. People weren't feeling that the government was transparent. And so the government began to work with activists, often digital activists, to create new spaces for engagement. And they actually employed a new online platform that didn't work like Facebook or Twitter. Its core distinction is that it managed to elevate voices and comments that found commonality on hard issues. The algorithm worked to find compromise as opposed to, as opposed to algorithms that amplify the heat and the fire of difference. These tools are working online. This tool has been working in Taiwan, and it's been responsible for various pieces of new legislation. And we know, if you look at Taiwan and its performance during COVID, it outperformed most Western nations in beating the virus, in lowering um, uh, transmissions, and uh, having very few or no deaths because of COVID. And we know that there's a strong correlation between social trust in any country and its ability to beat COVID. In other words, the highest trust countries had the lowest uh, COVID transmission rates. We can be inspired by these movements that are happening online and bring them into the ways we engage with people around questions of city design and city planning. I'm seeing this um, manifest in a small way in my own life. A few years ago, in a moment of deep loneliness and disconnection, I, I joined a co-housing community, a group of people who were about to pour their life savings into creating an, an urban village in Vancouver. 25 households, all in one building, uh, but sharing a large kitchen, kids' room, dining area, shared garden, shared workshop. And what we found through the process of working together to, to create this urban village was that we needed to start with values. So we worked on our shared values of common care, of altruism, mixed with pragmatism. And what I see now that I've moved into this community is that, well, sure, the architecture is great. We have these shared facilities and it's this wonderful and it's convenient. 
but there's an architecture of compassion, of behavioral practices that constantly impresses me. People are constantly making decisions that put their own needs aside and that um, instead benefit the whole community. So now I come home and uh, say it's maybe three o'clock in the afternoon and the lounge at the base of our building is full of children, six or seven children, just going crazy, you know, tearing furniture apart and building forts and screaming. And there's often one adult watching them. And that adult is more often than not just an elder from the community who's taken the responsibility for that day away from the parents who are finding some respite from the, the constant drain of parenting. I'm seeing how our community is being able to live our values by exposing ourselves to each other's needs, by committing to the common good. And it's much easier to do when you work in, in smallish so social groups. You see the best in one another. But I think we can build those systems in all of our neighborhoods and throughout our cities and in all our ways of working. Charles Montgomery is the author of the book Happy City, Transforming Our Lives Through Urban Design, and the founder of the urban design consultancy of the same name. He's based in Vancouver, Canada. This is Design Influence. I'm Isabel Swiderski. <laughs>